Good evening. It is a, a privilege to be able to come before you this evening and uh, hopefully deliver a good message from God's Word. Um, I'm reminded one time I was having a Bible study with an individual, and um, he was a, a preacher, a very experienced, wise preacher. And as we were studying, um, after our study, we were just kind of catching up afterwards, talking about our week, what was going on in our lives. And I mentioned that I was going to be preaching much like this. Um, and I said, um, I told him, yeah, I have to preach this Sunday. And he interrupted me, and um, he says, get to. I didn't quite understand what he meant by that. And he explained, he's like, you don't have to preach, you get to preach. It's like preaching is a privilege, it's never a chore. And so I'm very honored that I get to preach tonight. Um, you guys may not appreciate it as much. <laughs> A few years ago, whenever I was still at MTSU and I was um, in a class, um, it, it was a business classes. But that was my major, business major, and it was a class about marketing, sales, that kind of thing. It was a summer class, real small class. Really enjoyed it, a good experience. But um, we we had a project, a group project in that class, um, where we we separated into different groups. And it was actually more of a than just a project. It was actually a competition amongst the different groups. I had uh, two other members in my group. And our professor, he was good friends with um, a very successful business professional from, professional from Nashville. Um, this guy, he done, had different businesses throughout the years. Um, he, at one time, was partnered with Dave Ramsey um, for a long time, actually. And then he ended up parting ways and kind of doing his own thing and building his own businesses. Um, but his latest business at this time, um, he would actually take, um, he was working as an advisor, he would work with small family-owned businesses, and he is very, very niche market, but he would focus specifically on the transition period, the transition whenever the father figure of that business and the patriarch of that business would kind of relinquish their, their, their um, position in that business, pass it on to the next generation. And that's something that a lot of small family businesses don't really think about. Um, what happens whenever that father figure, that patriarch, passes away or decides to retire? What's going to happen to the business then? And so... Uh, his niche market was he would be an advisor for those people and walk them, hold their hand, set up a plan for what their next steps would be. Um, he himself was a fairly new business owner in this particular venture, and our project was to help him out. He had a very niche market, and up to that point, he was only getting his, um, I guess, marketing out through word of mouth, um, and that only goes so far. So he was trying to figure out, okay, I have this great business model, I have all these customers who are in need. Now, how do I get the word out to them that where to find me and how to find me? So our job was to find a plan for him to, to integrate into his business. Um, so a couple of the other guys who are much smarter than me, that kind of stuff, um, they came up with a, the first guy, he presented a plan, um, addressed some of the needs. The next guy, he worked on a lot of technical things, talking about um, search engine optimization and that kind of stuff. And then I was the closer. So I came up at the end of our presentation, and I just wanted to kind of paint a picture for these people. Now, this business owner and his wife who were there listening to us, um, I done, we dug some research into them, kind of dug into who they were, kind of what their likes were, what their hobbies were, what their education was, all that kind of stuff. And I happened to know that him and his wife were very avid outdoors people. They loved hiking and that kind of thing. So I, I kind of finished, wrapped up our presentation by telling this story. I said, I want you to picture that you're all alone and you're on a hike out in the woods, out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and everything's going fine, you're enjoying your day, you're enjoying nature, 
And all of a sudden, you slip and fall. You slip down a steep embankment. Maybe you injure yourself in the process, but you're down this embankment. You can't get up. You have no way of, of escaping the situation. You're completely trapped. You don't have a cell phone. You don't have cell reception, no radio, no rope, nothing to help you. You're absolutely, hopelessly stuck. All right? That's a very scary situation to be in. I said, that right now is the situation your potential clients are in. All right? They have no way of knowing what their next, next steps are. It's a scary situation. You have a way to save them, but they don't know about you. I said, now if you follow our plan, what you're doing is you're taking and you're giving them a cell phone. You're giving them a radio. You're giving them that hope. You're giving them access to the salvation that they need. Um, And in case you're curious, we won the competition. Um, He liked what we had to say. Um, Got got some pretty pretty nice little gift cards out of it as well. but anyways, that's kind of what I want to focus on today. Um, there's different situations where sometimes, sometimes we're the people who need help. Sometimes we're the people who are, have the ability to give help. Um, but I want to look at a few different examples of that tonight. Um, so first of all, I want to talk about, just plain and simple, helping others. All right, maybe in this particular scenario, we're that individual who has the ability to help somebody. We have that, that rope. We can, we can get them out of that situation. And there's people who are in very dire situations. Um, so I want to talk about, I'll look at a couple, a couple examples of kind of how Jesus took on this scenario. And first of all, I want to point out that one thing Jesus taught and did himself is he sought out those people in need. Um, he was like a, like a search and rescue individual. He was going out of his way to find those who were lost. And that's something that we could, should take on ourselves as well. I think about the Great Commission even in uh, Mark 16, verse 15. He says, go into all the world preaching the gospel. That's an active thing that he told us to be taking part in. Um, Jesus said that he came to seek out and, and save those who were lost in Luke 19. So I want to look at a couple examples of that. Let's turn to John chapter 4, first of all. John chapter 4, I really like this example. Um, This is the example of Jesus whenever he goes through Samaria and um, he speaks to the Samaritan woman there. And we're not going to read this whole account, but I want to pick and choose a few verses here. First of all, um, whenever we see where Jesus is, he's, he's down in the south, he's in Judea, he's leaving Judea, and if you can picture the map, he's leaving Judea, and he's going straight up to Galilee, to his home area. Um, and right in between those two, sandwiched in the middle, um, the cream of the Oreo, if you will, is Samaria. Um, and so that, that was, of course, if you know anything about Jewish culture, they hated the Samaritans, they hated the region, um, and... They had no desire to go through that area. Now, let's look at verse 4. Let's look at the way this is worded, first of all. Verse 4 says, but he, that is Jesus, needed to go through. Very easy to miss verse. But Jesus, geographically, did not need to go through Samaria. As a matter of fact, the Jews went out of their way to avoid it at all costs. They had other routes. Instead of just going straight up, often they would go out of their way to either go to the west and catch a, catch a boat ride up the Mediterranean coast, or they would go and cross over the Jordan River um, to the east, go up that side, and then cross back over again into Galilee. They would go to great lengths to avoid going through Samaria. So Jesus did not need physically to go through Samaria, but Jesus needed to go through Samaria. He had a reason. He had a purpose. Um, he's going out of his way to seek someone who was who lost. Um, so let's, let's pick up around verse 19. We see this woman, 
um, this Samaritan woman. He's had a conversation with her, talked about giving living water, all that stuff. But now he starts talking to her, to her a little bit, and she starts talking a little bit about her beliefs. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, uh, Mount Gerizim, I believe, there in Samaria. And it says, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So she's talking a little bit about some of their religious differences. Um, Great conversation to be having. And Jesus follows that up by explaining a little bit, um, kind of clearing things some up, um, some things up. In verse 21, Jesus says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship... Um, what we worship is for the salvation of the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Um, so let's look at Jesus' approach. Um, approach this situation. So he's gone out of his way to go through Samaria to seek out someone who was lost. So he found her. Okay, got that check mark. Now what does he do? Um, he, starts, he starts talking to them about um, building upon really what they know. Um, sometimes people get in, the, get in the situation where they have confrontation or they find someone who maybe their beliefs don't quite line up with ours. Um, and, and sometimes you see people and they just, the first instinct is to go book, chapter, and verse and tear down every single thing that person's faith is built upon. Uh, maybe they'll go after every single error. And there's a time and a place for that kind of stuff. But Jesus, he builds upon what she knows. She builds upon what her faith is based on. And then he finishes up by emphasizing that, that those who worship God must worship in spirit. She had the spirit. Um, she had the right attitude, but also in truth. So he takes and builds upon what she knows and then emphasizes the importance of not just having good faith, but also having the truth to go behind it. So he's building upon it. Let's look at another example of someone who did this. Let's turn to Acts 18. Acts 18, and this is the, the, um, the recording of Apollos. Um, let's start in verse 24. It says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside, explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to um, Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. This is a great example of someone who has a lot of zeal for the Lord. He has a lot of knowledge of the scriptures, but he's, he's slightly off a little bit. Um, he doesn't completely understand um, the truth in its entirety and and this new covenant that has come about. He's still, he's still practicing and preaching the baptism of John. So we have Aquila and Priscilla, um, these, these two Christians, who they take him aside. And they don't tear him down, but instead they build upon what he knows. Because um, he had a great knowledge of the scriptures. But he was a little off, so they, they explained it to him a little more accurately. Um, there's a lot of people out there in the world who have faith... They have a scriptural basis 
um, to build upon their faith, their faith upon, but something's a little off. Um, maybe they've been taught something wrong. Maybe they have a slight misunderstanding of what a scripture means. Um, but instead of tearing them down, um, if we look at the example of Jesus, we look at the example of Aquila and Priscilla, we see the kindness that they showed in, in taking the time to build upon that and explain things. Um, very godly example. So we, we seek people out, we, we help them understand, but another thing I want to emphasize when it comes to reaching out to others, helping others, is in a lot of ways there's nothing that is too small. Um, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians 3... And uh, we look at verse, starting verse 6, and we see Apollos again. Um, here he is a, a preacher, assuming it's the same one, a very successful preacher. And we see these kind of factions, these people that started to um, breed division based on who had taught them um, the truth. And Paul's dismissing this, but that's not really the side of it we're looking into. But if we look at verse 6, um, I really like the way it's worded. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Um, the emphasis here, there's lots of different things that we can be doing. Um, just, just planting a seed. Maybe it's just telling someone about God in some way. Or maybe it may be someone who has had that seed planted. Going back to someone like Apollos, he had the seed planted. He knew the scriptures. Um, but Quill and Priscilla, they had to do a little bit of watering in the process to get them to grow. But ultimately, we see, of course, God gives the increase. And then the most simple thing that we can do, um, though sometimes one of the hardest, is loving others. Um, showing love to people. David preached a sermon this morning about kindness and having that kindness. That's something that we can be doing to reach out to others and to help others. All right, now I want to hit a, kind of switch gears a little bit. Um, we talked about the, the idea of being the person who, who seeks out those who are lost, reaches out, um, and helps others. Now I want to flip, kind of switch roles a little bit. I want to talk about, for a minute, different people who God has put in position to help us. Um, and, and the first one I want to talk about, and one of the main ones, is um, the shepherds that God has put forth to, to shepherd our flock and to look out for us. Um, turn, if you would, now to the Old Testament. Let's turn back to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel 34. And here we have an example of some shepherds. These are elders or leaders that were, were in Israel at the time. And in this particular example, these are um, not really good ones. Um, we see God condemning them here in this chapter. And while these may not be New Testament elders, I think the concept of, of a shepherd still applies here to getting some context of kind of who a shepherd should be and what are some of the attributes that they should have. Um, so in Ezekiel 34, we see these bad shepherds, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Eat the fat. Uh, you eat the, flat, the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought that what was lost. But with force and cruelty you have, you have ruled them. So they are scattered because there is no shepherd. 
and they became filled, or they became food for all the beasts of the field. Uh, so pause right there. So here's an example of some bad shepherds. Uh, and let's look at some of, the, some of their responsibilities, some of their attributes. First of all, we see that they're feeding themselves. They're not focused on their flock, but instead they're selfishly feeding themselves. Um, but they're also neglecting their duties. And let's just look at some of these duties we see in verse 4. They had, a, they had a duty to strengthen those who were weak, to heal the sick, to bound the broken, bring back the driven away, seek the lost. These are all duties that we see in a spiritual sense, New Testament shepherds have as well. Um, they're supposed to be strengthening up those who are weak. They're supposed to be reaching out to those who are sick spiritually. Um, they're supposed to be trying to bring back those who have been driven away and seek those who are lost. So this is very applicable even to our shepherds today. And then um, later in the chapter, we see the example of, of God, the good shepherd. Um, God says, I will shepherd these sheep. Um, so let's look at... Um, but let's look at verse 10. After these sheep have been scattered because of their cruelty, we see verse, or actually verse 11. For thus says the Lord, indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. And, um, and then um, skip down to verse, let's see, verse 14. God says, I will feed them in good pastures and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There, shall, uh, there they shall lay down in a good fold and feed the rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away. Bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. So God's saying in contrast to everything that these bad shepherds were doing, here's an example of me, the good shepherd. And even today we should be comparing our shepherds to the example of God and his, him being the good shepherd. And let's, while we're at it, let's turn over now to um, Psalm 23, a very familiar psalm about, about God being the shepherd. And let's look at it from the perspective of us as a flock, as a congregation of God's people, um, and our shepherds as well. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. And you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So let's look at this. Let's look at how God is a shepherd. And if we start looking at it and digging into it, these are the same attributes our shepherds should have as well. Um, verse 2, they should be feeding us just as God feeds, feeds his sheep. Um, we see that God in verse 3 um, it says that he restores my soul. And our shepherds should be leading us to that restoration of our souls as well. Um, just as God does, our shepherds should calm our fears and comfort us. And ultimately, just as in verse 6, they should be leading us to the house of the Lord. Um, so let's look at the New Testament example now of our shepherds. Let's turn to 1 Peter 5. This is the passage that Derek read for us earlier. First Peter chapter 5. 
for the sake of time, we're not going to read every, every verse of this again since we've already read it. But let's look at some of the, some of the attributes of the shepherds here. Um, verse 1, or um, verse 2 rather, we see that, um, we see kind of the motive behind why someone should be a shepherd. In verse 2, it talks about um, the shepherd of the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Um, that dishonest gain is something that we saw those corrupt shepherds um, back in Ezekiel doing. Um, but they should be doing it because they're eager to help. They're willing to help. They're, they're looking out for their flock. Um, that should be their, their attitude. And verse 3, not as lords, but really, instead of just ruling harshly, but leading as an example. Um, it, it's sad when you start hearing stories about congregations where they have have an eldership, they have shepherds, leaders, rulers, and they are, they're rulers, they're, they're, they're mean and angry tyrants in a sense. Um, or you have the opposite side of the spectrum. You have people who are, are elders in name only, um, but instead they're really just puppets doing whatever the, the flock tells them to do. Um, but here we have someone who has a desire to serve, um, to be this overseer and look over the flock. Um, we see um, they're following, ultimately, the example of the chief shepherd in verse 4. It says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. Just like we just talked about. We have the good shepherd. He's our ultimate example as us as Christians, as the flock, but ultimately as shepherds too. Looking to his example. Um, but then, I want to flip, flip roles a little bit. We're focusing on the shepherds. Now I want to look at us as the flock. I want to focus on that for a minute. Um, we see in verse, verse 3... Um, the, at the end of it says, be examples to the flock. That's talking about us. Um, a shepherd can't be a shepherd without a flock. Um, it's kind of a kind of a necessity, two sides of the same coin. And either we're part of a shepherd's flock or we're not. We can't kind of be part of a flock. You either are or you aren't. Um, and so if we are part of the flock, um, we have responsibilities. We have duties to, to follow. Let's turn to Hebrews 13 and look at verse 17. Hebrews 13, and let's read verse 17. It says, Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls, as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Um, so we, we see that we're commanded to obey and to submit to those who are ruling over us. Um, and it says that they have, a, they have a very serious responsibility. They have a responsibility to watch out for our souls. So our job in this, in the, in this situation is to obey and submit. All right, now, I'm going to hit the pause button for a second on this topic. All right. I want to pause for a second. We're going to come back to this topic, but before we pursue it further, I want to pause for a second, and I want to look at some other examples where God has set people up in authority, not elders per se, but people in authority, and he talks about submission, talks about obedience, and then we're going to come back and make some conclusions about being submissive to our elders. All right, so first thing to talk about is, um, is being submissive to governing authorities, uh, that's a hard one. Let's turn to Romans chapter 13 real quick. Romans 13. And looking at verse 1. 
Um, it says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Uh, so right there we see, first of all, it's commandment given to submit to those authorities. Second of all, we see that those people were put in place by God, good or bad, in our opinion, those governing authorities were put in place by God. I mean, look at the authority in the time this was written. Look at the Caesars and how crazy and wicked they were. But he says, they're put there by God. They're appointed by God. So we need to submit to them and have respect for them. Um, verse 2, it, it goes even further saying, Whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So if we resist that person that God has put into power... It's as if we're resisting God himself. That's how severe it is. Um, and then, verse 4, we see the purpose of God putting these people in place. It says, for he is God's minister to you for good. Um, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Uh, sometimes we, our, our rulers aren't always the most godly individuals. But we've got to remember that God has put them in place. He expects, uh, expects us to submit to them. And he's put them in place for good. Um, now, again, obeying them isn't always the easiest thing. Let's look at verse 6 and 7, some of what obedience to them entails. It says, for because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers that attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. I'm reminded of um, in Matthew 22, where Jesus picks up the coin and he shows the face of Caesar on it. He says, render to Caesar who is, what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's. Taxes aren't a fun part of submitting to governing authorities, but we're still commanded to do it. There's lots of decisions that our governing authorities make that we may not like, um, but we're still commanded by God to submit to them, with the exception, of course, being if it's, if it's against God's commandments. Um, the point I'm trying to make here is submission to authorities doesn't just include when we like it. Submission to authorities is all-encompassing. It's whether I like it or not. I may not like those taxes. They may be taken more out of my piggy bank than I think they should. Um, but that's their right. And my command by God is to, is to, is to um, submit to it. All right. Let's look at, um, look at another one. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6. Um, we're going to look at the example of children obeying your parents. Verses 1 through 3. It says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, um, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Um, so, children obeying your parents. Uh, again, not really saying obey your parents when you want to. Obey you when it's convenient, when you agree with what they have to say. It's saying obey your parents, period. Um, my dad and I are very much alike. We think very much alike, but there's limitations to that. <laughs> we don't always think alike. There's been many times where I may not like something that he had, some, had to say, um, but the command was given, submit 
and obey your parents, not just when you like what they have to say, but even when it's hard, even when you may not like what they have to say. Um, Continuing in the next few verses, we see the example of servants obeying your masters. Um, Verse, let's see, verse, uh, verse five. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. And dropping down verse eight, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Servants, obey your masters. Whether you are a slave and you have a physical master that you are, um, who has full reign over you, or whether you are an employee and you have an employer, um, there's going to be hard times that, that you're going to be asked to do things that you don't want to do or you may not like to do. Um, but full submission means you, you suck it up and you do it anyways. And again, the, as long as those commands are not sinful in nature, we are expected to submit to it. And we're expected to, to follow through with it. Um, and of course, the perfect example of that is Jesus. Um, turn to Philippians 2. This was actually part of our Bible study this morning in class. Um, and I had another passage to go here, but this one was just too perfect. Um, not to put down. So Philippians chapter 2. We see Jesus and his humility is the ultimate example of obedience and submission. Uh, Philippians 2 and beginning of verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which also um, was in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. He humbled himself and he was obedient. He was submissive. Jesus is God, but he still submitted himself to the will of the Father. That is submission. Um, I think about in Matthew 26 when he's in the garden and he prays. He says, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. That is submission. That is obedience. That's the kind of heart that we need to have. And so now let's turn back to Hebrews 13. All right. We're, we've hit pause. Now we're hitting play again. All right. So Hebrews 13, we're back on this topic of, of being submissive to our elders, to our shepherds who are out guard, guarding our souls. Uh, so we see verse, verse 17, just to remind us, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. Submission um, is something to help us. It's for our benefit. It's also for our shepherd's benefit. And that plays a big role in it as well. Um, so that they can do their job with joy and without grief, without all this opposition. And it says that would be unprofitable for everybody if they're having to fight tooth and nail every step of the way. Um, Turn real quick to Matthew chapter 12. I want to look at this example real quick and make an application to this scenario. Matthew chapter 12, just context. um, We're going to be looking at verse 25 and 26. But context, Jesus has just cast out a demon and the Pharisees are mad about it. <laughs> Anything that they can, they can do to, to try to drag Jesus' name through the mud. 
So he's done something good. He's cast out a demon, and they're claiming, oh, well, he must have the power of Beelzebub in order to do this. Uh, must have the power of the demons, the power of Satan on his side. Jesus points out how ridiculous and unprofitable that would be. In verse 25, it says, He knew their thoughts, and he said, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Now, if Satan is against Satan, if he casts out Satan, he's, he's dividing himself amongst his own ranks. Now let's make application. If God's people are trying to cast out God's established leaders, how can we stand with that kind of division? Um, talking about this, this idea of submission. If we only submit to our elders on decisions that we like, but whenever it comes to a decision that we're not very fond of, something that we don't really want to do, something that we don't really want to follow, and instead we decide not to follow on that occasion, or we try, even on occasions, maybe we decide, you know what, I don't really like that, so I'm going to try and visit somewhere else for a little bit till things cool down. If we only submit whenever we like what we hear, are we truly having an attitude of submission? I would argue not. Um, Submission is following our leaders even when we may not like their decisions. Um, That's something, and you know, you you hear the phrase preaching to the choir. Well, I'm preaching to myself. I'm preaching to a big mirror right now. Um, That's a hard thing to do. Think back on this past year. There's been elders all across this world have had to make some very hard decisions, and they can't please everybody in their decisions. Um, And some of the decisions made, I may not particularly care for. But if, I, if it's not scripturally wrong and I have this attitude of submission, I'm going to follow anyways. I'm not going to cause those divisions. And that's a hard pill to swallow. Um, like I said, whenever I preach a sermon, um, I do so selfishly. I preach about not what I think necessarily everybody else needs, but I preach about what I think I need. Um, and this has been a topic that I've found the need to study um, especially given current events. You know, sometimes this is hard, but that's the attitude of submission that we're commanded to have. Um, let's look at um, Acts chapter 20. Here we see Paul, and he's, he's talking to, to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. So if God, if he expects, we've looked at all, this, all these different examples of submission to all these different earthly and at times even worldly leaders. If God expects us to submit, whether we like it or not, to, to their rule, how much more so do you think that would apply to these godly leaders that he has put into place? Um, but let's look at Acts 20, um, beginning verse 28. Let's see what Paul has to say to the Ephesian elders. Verse 28, he says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So, first of all, we see that these shepherds, these elders, they've been put into place by God. They've been established by the Holy Spirit. 
And we see verse 29 that they have a purpose, and that's to protect the flock. He says, for I know this, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That's their job, to to look out for the flock, first and foremost. Um, But then, let's look at the next verse. Um, verse, Verse 30, also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Um, there, there may come a time when savage wolves can work their way not only into the flock, but even into the shepherds guarding the flock. Um, something that we all have to look out for. Um, we, every example of a leader that we've looked at so far, we've seen follow, submit, obey, with that one exception, right? With that exception of there may come a time when they ask you to do something that's not scriptural. Um, And we've got to be looking out for that. And Paul's warning these elders saying, watch out even amongst yourselves. Um, There may come a time when someone arises who doesn't have the flock's best interest at heart, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And so let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 5 now. And let's talk about that idea for a minute. When it comes to a decision made by an eldership that doesn't match with what God has has put forth with his standard. What are we supposed to do about it? So this is an example of disliking a decision by an eldership, more so than just, I don't like it. My, it's not, in my opinion, the best action, but this is something that, that goes against what God's scriptures have to say. And let's look at verse 19. It says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning, rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest may also fear. So, like I said, this is an example where this is going against Scripture, whatever their decision may be, whatever action they've taken. But first of all, listen to kind of the attitude of it. This Scripture points out it is a bold thing to accuse one of God's shepherds of doing something that that goes against his scripture. These are the people who've been established by God, met certain qualifications, and they've been established to look out for our souls. It's a bold thing to to accuse them of something. Um, So he says, whenever that is the case, whenever you are accusing of something, he says, be prepared to back this accusation with, um, of course, scripture, but also with proof, you know, having two or three witnesses on your side as well. Um, so it's not something to be taken lightly. It's something to be taken with a depth of seriousness. But I also want to point out that it is our duty to do this thing. If we see, if we see something that is being done by the eldership that goes against God's scriptures, it's our duty to reach out to them about it. Um, not only is it our duty, if we truly have love for one another and love for the eldership that we should have, we should want to, we should want to be doing that. We should want to be correcting that situation to begin with. Um, but I, I point that out because it's easy to take the easy way out in this kind of situation. If there is something, uh, we may not want to be confrontational. It's easy to just, well, you know what? I don't really like the decisions they've been making, and I don't even think it lines up with God's word. So I, I'm just going to remove myself from the situation and go somewhere else. But we see, the scripture points out, we have a duty to sit down with them and, and to discuss it with them and to point it out. Um, not just, not just kind of say, well, I don't like it, but um, I'm going to go somewhere else or I'm going to try to remove myself. And, and I point this out again. 
I choose things selfishly. I point this out because it's so easy whenever any kind of authority figure makes some sort of decision that you're not, you're not very happy about. It's so easy to talk to your buddies about it, kind of grumble, grumble, complain, complain, but not do anything about it. Um, thankfully, we have an eldership here that I believe is, is um, very open to conversation in these kind of matters. And based on scripture, we should be taking advantage of that. Um, now, notice how whether it's there are our spiritual leaders, whether it's our physical leaders, our rulers, our parents, our masters, whatever the case may be, we've looked at every example of this and we say, all right, we need to submit, we need to obey, with that one exception of if they're, if they're doing something in error. Now, I want to just point out for just a second just the, the wonderfulness and that we can look at our supreme ruler and we don't have to worry about that one exception. We can know that what he says is truth and we don't have to worry about, man, I need to compare this to the scriptures. I need to compare what he says, make sure all his T's are crossed and his I's are dotted. Now let's turn to Titus chapter one. Titus chapter 1, and we're just going to read the opening of this, um, verses 1 through 3. Um, th- this is Paul's greeting to Titus here, the opening to his epistle, um, but I think it says a lot. It says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth uh, which, um, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of our God and our Savior. See, two things. First of all, we see the assurance that God cannot lie. So we know what he says is truth. We don't have to worry about comparing every little detail, every command he gives to some sort of standard. He is the standard, and he's a truthful standard. And second of all, we have the reassurance that um, he mentions that he's passed this word, this truth on through preaching, and he's passed it on um, through Paul and through others through his scriptures. So we have his truth, we have his standard, and we don't have to worry like we do with other leaders. We know what he says is truth. All right, one last aspect I just want to hit real briefly, and then um, the lesson will be yours. Um, One other thing I want to talk about in in the concept of um, thinking about our analogy at the beginning. Um, There's people who need help, and there's people who give help. And sometimes we're in both categories. Um, But I want to talk for just just a couple minutes about, um, about forgiveness, now, those are a couple of Caleb minutes, not Leland minutes. You ever notice when Leland says, all right, we're going to talk about this for 90 seconds. You look at your clock, and it's precisely 90 seconds. I can't make that guarantee. But for a couple of Caleb minutes, we're going to talk about, about forgiveness. So turn, if you would, to Ephesians 4. And I want to specifically talk about forgiving others and forgiving our brethren. Um, that's, that, that's some way we can help one another um, at times. And Oftentimes, very, very necessary. Whenever I was studying for this, and I was looking at various different passages about this topic of of forgiving one another, one thing stood out to me. Almost every single verse I looked at, I should if we had time, I'd go down a list of them, but almost every single verse I looked at mentioned 
paraphrasing, but forgive one another as you have been forgiven. And it just really stood out to me. That's kind of what I want to focus on. But Ephesians 4 and verse 32 is an example of that. 4 verse 32 says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Um, think about Matthew 6. We see Jesus in his model prayer. He talks about, forgive us of our debts um, as we forgive our debtors. Those two go hand in hand. Just as we've been forgiven, it's our job in turn to forgive others as well. Uh, turn to Luke 17. I'm sorry, turn to Matthew 18 first. Matthew 18. And uh, verse 21, this is, this is the occasion where, where Peter, so he says, he comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, how often shall uh, my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Sounds pretty good, right? Jesus says, I do not say up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And then he speaks a parable about forgiveness. Um, but basically, when it can't, comes to forgiveness, there's no limit to our forgiveness. Another example of that. Now turn to Luke 17. Luke 17 and verse 3. He says, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. What this is saying is, Every time your brother comes to you asking for forgiveness, first of all, it doesn't say it's up to you to decide, you know what, I'm not sure if he's sincere or not. Or, I don't know, he's done this to me six other times already. What's to stop him from doing number seven? That's not up to us to judge. Um, Our commandment by God himself is if he comes to you asking for forgiveness, you are to forgive him. That's a hard pill to swallow, too. Uh, now, go, going back to thinking about earlier, every time it talks about forgiving one another, it draws that, you know, that comparison. Forgive just as you have been forgiven. All right, so anytime I'm in that situation, and maybe I'm getting frustrated, maybe I've had to forgive this person for something, maybe they've done the same thing over and over again, it's exhausting. Then I put myself in our Lord's shoes, and I think about, how many times has he forgiven me? How many times has he forgiven me for the same thing? How many times has he forgiven me for the same thing with the knowledge that I'm probably going to do it again? And that is humbling. That every time I come before God and I have that penitent heart, even if it's something I've done 70 times 7, um, we know that the Lord is faithful to forgive us. And his, in return, whenever our brother comes up to us, we in turn are commanded by God to forgive them as well. Let's look at a familiar passage, 1 John 1 verse 9. And it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, God is faithful to forgive. I want you to think about that now as we, as we conclude this, this lesson. Think about that forgiveness and, and look, look at your own life. 
um, and ask yourself, do you need that forgiveness from God? And if so, what can we, what can we do to help? Um, is it something that you need to come forward and we can help you? We can, we can help you in that process of forgiveness. Maybe it's something where you need to be forgiven by your brethren. Um, we also see in Acts 2, verse 37 and verse 38, um, where the people, the, the people there, the Jews, they've been cut to the heart when they realized that they were in sin. And they asked, what, what, will we, what shall we do? And Peter tells them, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. That's the forgiveness part. Um, if you haven't become that Christian, you haven't started your life in Christ, and you need that forgiveness from him, you need that salvation from him, you need that, that cleansing baptism. Now, if we can help you in any way, we ask you to come forward as we stand and sing.